Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. When Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, as you heard in our gospel lesson, uh, he's coming into Jerusalem. Uh, this is Palm Sunday. He's riding on a donkey. The people are shouting hosannas, and Jesus is crying. He's crying because he knows his own people reject him. They don't recognize that he has come to save them. They don't think they need to be saved. And when Jesus does this, when he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, he is, of course, prophesying real history. Uh, there's a popular myth out there uh, that uh, says that Jesus himself was simply a myth, that Jesus was an imaginary man, uh, that the Bible is a book that merely fell out of the sky, and it's all, it's all made up, it's all about this imaginary guy named Jesus. That's ridiculous. Not only is the Bible real history, uh, and there's internal evidence for it, but we have extra uh, evidence, uh, external evidence for it as well. Uh, Non-biblical accounts confirming the historicity of Scripture. Uh, for instance, we have Josephus' uh, historical account of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, Josephus was a first-century Jewish Roman historian, and his account is not in the Bible, uh, but it's a, it's a historical record that records the events that Jesus himself prophesied 40 years earlier, which you heard in our gospel. And to emphasize that the history of Christianity is real history, uh, and more importantly, that what happened to Jerusalem could happen to us. Right? God sends disasters on his people in order, that, in order to call them to repentance, it's not limited to, to Jerusalem. The early church began to record or to read Jesus' prophecy every year on the 10th Sunday after Trinity because uh, Trinity 10, like it does this year, falls uh, very early in August. Uh, August 10th was the date of the destruction of the city. And it was the tradition in Lutheran churches uh, in Germany and Scandinavia to read a condensation of Josephus' history uh, of, on this day. And in some places, even in America, this tradition continued uh, all the way into the, the 1920s and 30s. And then modernism came and we lost taste for this sort of thing, thinking that we had everything under control. We've got the technology and the know-how, we're better than this, we don't need to know this anymore. But I think especially when destruction and plague, pandemic, is at our doorstep, it's a good time who again contemplated, just like our Lutheran fathers. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, in your service folder, you've got a, uh, 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 an insert, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a condensation of uh, Josephus' account, uh, paraphrased uh, and, uh, and adapted uh, by our Lutheran fathers a, a few hundred years ago. So we'll, we'll spit it up. And uh, here now the first, uh, the first part. 
As the time approached wherein God would at last send forth his wrath against Jerusalem and the Jewish people, the entire Jewish kingdom was vexed at every turn. The high priests practiced tyranny against the other high priests. There was hatred and jealousy among other officials. And from this mobs and all manner of divisive factions and much robbery and murder was found in and around Jerusalem. For this reason, the emperor Nero sent Gessius Florus to the Jewish lands. And compared to him, the Jews were so obstinate in their greed, arrogance, and wantonness, the Jews hunted down and killed 5,000 of his men. The Jews were also fanatical about setting themselves against the Romans and revolting. When the emperor Nero became aware of this, he sent Flavius Vespasianus and his son Titus to Syria. Vespasian came to Galilee which was heavily populated and laid waste to everything, there being no end of murder, plundering, and fire. Many thousands of Jews were slaughtered. On one occasion, as many as 50,000 valiant men, together with women and children. The soldiers spared neither old nor young, neither the pregnant nor babes in arms. On one occasion, Vespasian sent 6,000 young men as slaves to Achaia to dig on the isthmus. 30,000 Jewish combatants were sold into bondage. In desperation, 5,000 threw themselves off high cliffs. As this was taking place in Galilee, a great crowd of rapacious people, at the instigation of Johannes, one of the great men, came to Jerusalem, so that he might use this rabble to break up the regiment there. There was also much secret murder, robbery, and plundering in Jerusalem. It also happened that several high priests were slaughtered, and much blood was spilled, even in the temple. Josephus wrote that 12,000 of the best and noblest Jews were overtaken in this uproar and had their houses and possessions given as plunder to the mob and the vulgar and lowly. So it was that even before agreeable weather returned, Jerusalem had been plagued with threefold misfortune, namely a war with Rome, with insurrection, and all manner of mutiny and tyranny which had faction rising against faction, and with the knowledge of the rulers, shedding much blood. Uh, we'll sing a hymn now, uh, the hymn printed in your service folder, uh, Unchanging God Here. This is a hymn printed uh, in our, our synod's uh, 1913 hymnal, uh, the Lutheran hymnary. Uh, and this hymn is a prayer uh, for God to call us to repentance. And just as he called the city of Jerusalem, uh, and all the Jewish people to repentance, and for God to call to repentance and save today his chosen people, even those who currently do reject him. We do confess that God wants all people uh, to be saved, and so this is our prayer uh, in this hymn. We sing Unchanging God here.
A couple of years ago, uh, when we lived in northern Minnesota, I had new uh, snow tires put on my car. And I did this right before we had to drive to Michigan uh, for Thanksgiving. It was about a 14-hour drive. About four hours in, I started noticing a slight vibration uh, in the car. A mile or two went by, and, and it got worse. It kept getting worse and worse. I could feel it under my, my left foot whenever I extended it. So we decided to stop, and I, I got out, and I went to the front tire. And I reached out, and I, I touched a lug nut, and, and with just my fingers, I could, I could move it, even take it off. Turns out I could do that with every single one. If we had gone just a little bit further, maybe even just another mile or two, I could have lost the whole tire driving 70 miles an hour down the highway in the winter. What was an undetectable problem just hours earlier slowly turned into a potentially deadly problem. This is the way it is with unbelief. And it's the point of Luke's gospel lesson this morning from chapter 19. Unbelief is usually not a, a sudden break, but it's a slow loosening. Satan pulls people away from the church, from the Lord, very gradually until it's too late. And it starts with, first of all, not recognizing that there's a problem. Jerusalem had been taken five times before this. And this was now the second time of its complete desolation. Uh, the first time was over 700 years before uh, when uh, Jerusalem had been taken into captivity by, uh, uh, by Assyria, by Babylon. And they'd been warned again and again and again. Prophet after prophet had come and told them to repent, uh, to look to the Lord for salvation, and that the Lord, the Messiah, is coming. And now the Messiah, the long-awaited Jesus, had finally come. He was here. He was riding into the city uh, and into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in just five days, Jesus will be nailed to the cross. They do not recognize that God has come to save them. And so Jesus weeps. He does not want to see them destroyed. God has not come uh, to, to destroy people. God wants all people to be saved. But they, by their own unbelief, will be destroyed. The majority of the people do not think, did not think they needed a Savior. They were content with their lives and their own righteousness. And so their example, just as Paul had used the example of the Israelites who had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and, and were discontent with what the Lord had given them, did not think they needed the Lord, and so were destroyed in the desert by serpents uh, uh, and, and, and everything else. Uh, Jesus uses the destruction of Jerusalem now to warn us, to wake us up, to make us realize that we cannot rely on our own righteousness and to call us to repentance and faith. It's what the destruction of Jerusalem is for us. It's that inconvenient wiggle that, that trembling, that, that, that shaking, that, that wakes us up, saves us from eternal death. And God still uses events like this in our lives. In times of destruction, in personal destruction, a death, disease, poverty, or simply even being shown our sin, which always hurts because we don't like to be shown our sin, or in worldly or, or broad destruction, famine, war, a sedition, rebellion, or yes, even pandemic or plague, the very worst response is to say, 
Ah, it doesn't matter. Uh, I have faith that that's all really God cares about. I can go on living the rest of my life. God calls us through these to repent, to trust in him, to look to him in faith more and more, to put behind us those sinful things that would, that would cause our eternal destruction. Earthly destruction of any sort is seemingly harmless as a little cold or, or as big as a worldwide pandemic is that little wiggle of our tire, that shake that causes to wake us up and realize that, that today and, and indeed every day, every Sunday especially, is the day of the Lord's visitation. I'll read the second part of Josephus' account. Now at the beginning of winter, Vespasian heard that Nero was dead, besieged the city with Roman legions so that he might easily storm and take Jerusalem. Now since Vespasian was recalled from his legions to become emperor, so that he might go to Egypt and then to Italy, he gave the command of the Jewish campaign to his son Titus. Titus established his encampment near to Jerusalem and divided the legions to besiege the city from several sides. Meanwhile, a great host of people from all cities and regions were gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. In other words, there's a lot of people from, from, every, from everywhere uh, for this major feast of, of Christianity. And so far it's happening just as Jesus had said. There were also, as mentioned above, three factions in the city seeking to destroy unity and order. One element was the temple faction. Among these, Eliezer, son of Simon, was the leader. The zealots, an evil hypocritical lot, hostile to the populace, belonged to this faction. In the lesser faction, Johannes, the source of all misfortune, as mentioned above, held sway. The principal faction was controlled by Simon. With the help of 20,000 Idumeans, sought to save the city by the, from the wantonness and determined intention of the zealots. Many of these would have had guests somewhere else, but they could not be gotten rid of. When Titus saw that the city was overcrowded beyond counting, hastily armed and reinforced himself in order to lay siege to the city and, as Christ had foretold, to encircle it with wagons so that hunger might drive them to greater distress and anxiety. When the Jews saw this, they with all their might to hinder and prevent this and to keep it from happening. But it was completed and they were out of lick, for our Lord God wanted to make an end of them. The city of Jerusalem was well fortified and had three walls. Therefore, the Roman forces approached in full force to storm the city, and after much work, the first and second walls conquered and taken. At this time, an innumerable multitude of people died of hunger, as Josephus wrote. The best of friends would often come to blows over a small piece of bread. Children would often rip food from their parents' mouths. Neither brother nor sister had mercy upon the other. A bushel of corn was more precious than gold. Driven by hunger, some ate manure, some the cinches of their saddles, some the leather stripped from their shields. Some still had hay in their mouths when their bodies were found. Some sought to escape starvation by means of their own filth. So many died of starvation that 115 corpses were found in the city and buried. Hegesippus reported that at one gate alone, several thousand were carried out and that 600,000 died because of the siege. Josephus reported that such a fearful, gruesome event occurred 
that future generations would hardly be able to believe it. There was a respected woman, wealthy and well-bred, across the Jordan, having fled Jerusalem in fear with some others. Now since the city had been so grievously beset with hunger, with what manner of crying and pain one can only imagine, slaughtered her young child in the cradle, roasted half of it and ate it. When the soldiers came by looking for food, she set the remaining portion before them. The soldiers removed themselves from this gruesome scene, and having mercy upon the miserable woman, revealed this event to the Lord of Jerusalem. A gruesome uh, account of the, of the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, we'll sing another hymn now, uh, Beside the Streams of Babylon, printed in your service folder. Uh, this hymn, uh, which is the original text written for the melody, uh, which you'll recognize, uh, it's on washer flus in Babylon, uh, beside the waters of Babylon. Uh, and it'll be new, in the new well salt, they're coming out later this year. Um, is an old hymn, uh, and it's a paraphrase of Psalm 137. Uh, and Psalm 137 is the song of Israel's remit after the first destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon uh, around 721 B.C. Uh, so here in, in, the, in the song, Israel sings uh, from captivity in Babylon, unable to go home. They lament and long to go home. And, and so we sing it, we make this our song, as we are longing to return to our heavenly Jerusalem, our heavenly home. So we sing beside the streams of Babylon.
I'll read the third portion of Josephus' account, and you can follow along. The Jews occupied the castle Antonia, which was a strong fortress. They also occupied the temple compound, from which a stream flowed into the city. It cost more to conquer this fortress than all others combined. Titus, however, fired up his men to storm the fortress by force. When the Romans had taken the castle, the trumpeter sounded a signal, and all the Jews who had occupied the castle were slain or thrown from the walls, but some hurriedly, hurriedly escaped to the city in the darkness. It is said that Titus wanted to spare the temple, but God decreed that it would not be spared. For after, for after men had long walked and worked, and the Jews could not be moved, neither with threats nor exhortations, to give up their fortified positions, the soldiers realized that the temple could only be conquered with fire. So the men yet lit it a fire. And in that hour, the magnificent, exquisite, and priceless building, which was celebrated far and wide, burned and was reduced to ashes. The priests had to beg and entreat pitifully to keep themselves alive, but the grace of God and men had run out. Titus, so Hegesippus writes, stated, Now that their temple and services are gone, the priests are no longer needed. This destruction of the temple occurred in the, on the tenth day of the month of August. But the Jews that remained after the destruction of the temple and the section of the city not conquered by the Romans thought to surrender themselves and went to Titus. Although they had not waited too long to make peace, and they did petition for peace and freedom because they were starving and in great need, nothing came of it, as it was only a few days since the city had been taken. Meanwhile, uncountable numbers of people, driven by anxiety and the distress of unbearable hunger, ran from the city into the hands of the enemy camp. There they sold themselves cheaply. It was then that the soldiers became aware of a certain Jew that was picking gold from which he had swallowed out of his own excrement. Thus the rumor began to spread throughout the entire camp. This rumor caused those soldiers who thought about it to believe that they could find gold and all the Jews who had come out of the city to their encampment. More than 2,000 Jews were disemboweled in a single night, and many more suffered the same fate uh, had Titus not decreed that the captives should not be killed. Finally, the entire city of Jerusalem was conquered. Neither young nor old were spared. Then a decree went out that all miserable people who were incapable of offering any resistance should be spared. Also, Jerusalem was thoroughly plundered by the foe, raised, burned, and left in ruin. Some buildings were left standing so that a few Roman soldiers might have been able to stand watch there. Only a few devastated buildings and towers were left standing to indicate that a city had once been there. The city was destroyed and raised on the eighth day of September, in the fifth month of the siege. Thus, the most celebrated city in all of the East came to a miserable and lamentable end, as had been prophesied. Luther has this little thought experiment of sorts in the, in the large catechism, where he pictures God as an ever-flowing ever fountain, a stream, a, a spring. And from this spring, from this fountain, come streams of every blessing. One stream is the blessing of wealth, another stream the blessing of health, another of family, another of your home, another of your life itself. 
and, and, and uh, Luther said, uh, this is how you can tell if someone has uh, and loves, honors, and trusts the, the true God. If God permits one of those streams to be cut off, that's where it becomes evident where someone's faith and trust lies. They'll either go chasing the stream that's drying up or has dried up, or they will return to the fountain from whence all good things come. When God permitted the holy city and the temple to be destroyed, it was a pivotal moment. Unfortunately, some decided to cling to the temple rather than God. You heard uh, Josephus write uh, that they didn't think they needed priests anymore. The Romans said that. They don't need priests anymore. And some of the Jews would have even agreed. They just needed the temple. Even today, that's what the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall in Jerusalem, is. It's the only part of Jerusalem from 70 A.D. that wasn't completely leveled. And still uh, some, even some Christian denominations, hope and wait for the rebuilding of the temple, as if that's the key for eternal salvation. And yet when Jesus came, as the Bible says, he was the temple made without hands. Jesus had said of his body, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought they were talking about, they thought he was talking about the Jerusalem temple when he was talking about his own body. And though the temple in Jerusalem remains destroyed, Jesus could not be. His body did not remain in the grave. He is now bodily raised in everlasting glory and honor, the new and eternal dwelling place of God for you. Jesus is your temple. And by the Holy Spirit, he puts his temple in your heart through faith by his word. And the risen body of Christ is full of holiness and righteousness and cleansing and healing and hope and salvation for you. Baptize into him. These things are yours. He brings them to you through his word and sacraments, bread and wine and water. You are now the body of Christ. You are the temple of Christ's spirit who dwells in you through your baptismal faith. You are safe from divine judgment. The destruction that happened to Jerusalem will not happen to you, for you are in him who took the judgment for you. And he could not be destroyed. Through baptism, you are made into God's chosen nation, a holy people, the new Israel. And one day, as Revelation says, you will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation says, behold, the tabernacle of God, the temple of God, is with men. And he dwelled with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Behold, God has made all things new. We sing our hymn, Jerusalem the Golden, hymn 534, verses 7 to 9 and 14. Hymn 534. 